everyone, and welcome to Social Sport. I'm your host, Emma Zimmerman, and this show is a member of the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. On Social Sport, I feature conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change. These athletes are climate change activists, they're mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces, and much more. But what ties all of these athletes together is that they're committed to exploring the connection between sport and activism in their lives. This series of social sport on reds and eating disorders in sport is sponsored by Femme Protein Powder. Femme makes a plant-based powder, Femme Power Restore, that provides fuel and recovery with the active female in mind. I have personally had quite the journey in finding a protein powder that I enjoy. I find that a lot of them are heavy and hard to digest. But Femme Protein Powder is made of simple plant-based ingredients. It's easy to digest and it's delicious. You can go to femproteinpowder.com and use the promo code SOCIALSPORT at checkout to get 10% off your order. That's femproteinpowder.com, promo code SOCIALSPORT. This is the fourth episode in a five-part series on reds and eating disorders in sport. If you didn't catch the previous three episodes and you're not familiar with REDS, it stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sports, and it's the result of taking in too little food to support energy output. When we think about eating disorders and REDS among athletes, we often think of it as looking a certain way, and usually that's white, small-bodied women. Well, my guest today is working to change this. Starla Garcia is a registered dietitian and the founder and owner of The Healthy Shine. She is passionate about preventing reds in communities of color and ending the stigma in sports dietetics against cultural foods. In this episode, we talk about all of this and Starla shares her own experience with reds and how it connects to her Mexican-American identity. Starla is amazing. I appreciated this conversation and her passion so much, and I know you will too. All right. Hey, Starla, welcome to Social Sport. I'm really excited for this conversation. Hi, thank you so much. I'm very, very excited as well. Could you tell everyone who isn't familiar with your work who you are and where you are right now and what you do? Um, hi, everyone. My name is Starla Garcia. I am a registered dietitian in Houston, Texas. I am also the founder and owner of the Healthy Shine, which is a private practice that I founded during the pandemic. Um, and I'm also a marathoner. So many incredible things. And I'm just amazed by how you make everything work because you train at such a, a high level, but also the Healthy Shine has been so successful and you're so well known in the dietitian and running world. So I'd love to kind of trace that evolution a little bit from the beginning and go back in time. What was your experience with food and exercise like as a child? So my experience around food and exercise, I'll start with the food part. Um, I grew up with a, in a household that had everything. There were no boundaries really around food. My parents carried everything. Um, it wasn't 
like the healthiest, but it was, I think for like at that time and what my family's financial situation was, it was probably, you know, like more on like the more processed food end, but I wouldn't say that there were any fresh foods either. We just grew up with like everything. Um, my parents allowed for all foods to fit. And that's what I remember most about my childhood is like, if I woke up and I didn't want to eat what my mom made for me, my mom would actually tell me, you know, if you don't want to eat this, then you can have a peanut butter sandwich. And here's the loaf of bread and the peanut butter and a butter knife and you go for it. Um, so I think my mom was pretty good about like allowing for most things to fit. I would say that my relationship with food changed more when I got into high school about the time where my running started to pick up more. Um, I was always a runner as well since I was a kid. I think my first race that I ran was probably in like third grade and I won. And I remember like really, really gravitating toward that identity as a runner. Um, and I'm a, I'm a middle child. So I think that definitely resonated a lot with like what my identity was um, as a kid. I think a lot of times parents, they can easily put an identity on a child. And I think like, I definitely put that on myself and I was quickly identified as like the runner um, and the runner that was good at it. So I think when I got into high school, I started to really look at, you know, what did I want to do with running? And I started to look at, you know, ways that I could be a better runner. Um, I would say that food was not like a big Thing until maybe later on until like maybe I was a senior in high school but that's when I started to develop more of um, a concern around like the foods I was eating and being more preoccupied with my food choices yeah it's so interesting to hear how much that identity as a runner was so central for you at such a young age because third grade that is young do you think that had an effect on your relationship with food that long-standing connection to the identity runner? That's a good question. You know, I, I think I just really gravitated toward being identified as something. Um, I know I worked really, really hard and I know that I liked to be identified as like the hardest worker. I will say that even now my, my older sister will tell me that my dad always said that I was like the hardest worker. Um, I wasn't like naturally as smarter intellectual as she is. And I think I like kind of knew that, but I knew I was a hard worker. I knew I had to work really, really hard to be like, get the same grades as my older sister did. Um, so I think like, I knew that I was a very hardworking kid right from the get-go. Um, even my mom would say that I would like work myself really, really hard as a kid. I wanted to make straight A's all the time. So I think having the identity as a runner gave me another way to channel all of my hard work and was like an easy way to see the progress and how much I was receiving in return for my hard work. It was, it came a lot more naturally to me. It's so interesting to hear about people who develop eating disorders and their characteristics as a young child, mm -hmm. because it's so true that those characteristics mm -hmm. of drive and, and hard work that make people such great athletes are often the ones that also drive eating disorders. So you can kind of see that thread playing out. And I know you've spoken very openly about your eating disorder, which a lot of people uh, really appreciate, I'm sure. And I, you grew up in Texas and then you went to the University of Houston where you were a D1 runner. And I would love to talk about your experience as both 
a D1 runner and a Mexican-American woman and how those two identities interacted with your eating disorder? Because I know you've talked, you've spoken a little bit about those identities and your eating disorder before. Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like as I've as I've moved through adulthood and out of my adolescent phase, or even like as a young 20 year old, I had no idea what was really happening at the time. Like I didn't have the language, nor did I have people around me that told me that what I was experiencing. Um, And so I think I'm really, really lucky now to look at it in like a way that's much healthier and like retrospectively. So what was happening at the time of my eating disorder in college was this, so I'm second and third generation American. Um, I identify as Mexican American, Mexican, um, Chicana, Latina, whatever that is. Um, I feel like I embrace all identities and on that spectrum pretty, pretty openly and pretty, I welcome them. Um, But it took me a while to really, I think, identify as like a true Mexican woman as well. Um, And I think it was because I grew up in such a homogenous area of Texas where like over 90% of the population looks just like me and is a Hispanic woman. So um, if people were to Google far Texas, McAllen, Texas, it would be right at the border of Mexico, right at the very tip of Texas, which is like a fun thing to look through. Um, And so I remember everybody looking like me. And so I I just remember really feeling like I didn't feel like a minority woman because everybody was the majority. Everybody like me was the majority. So when I moved to Houston, it's a melting pot of cultures, different people. Um, And I didn't know how to, I think, embrace my identity of who I was right away because I had never had to actually do that. So I was was very, very shaken up by it um, emotionally, I think. Um, But again, I didn't have the language to, to identify that. Because I am second, third generation, I have assimilated a little bit more. And there is a lot of acculturation that had happened um, that I was also not aware of. I just felt like most of my peers were also second, third generation. Um, and so I think sometimes I wish that more people understood that too, of, you know, that there are Hispanic families and generations of us here already. Um, it's funny, there's kind of a saying that we didn't cross the border necessarily. It's also the border crossed many people as well. So um, my family is actually, you know, they originated from Mexico and they became citizens later on in their lives. Um, But I think sometimes that's like an important thing to definitely understand, like there's this lack of awareness of that as well. Um, And that goes into like text independence history and all of those things too. So um, I think I think when it came to being in college, it was difficult because I didn't understand those things. Um, And I think I was quickly labeled as like the Mexican, but I don't think at that time I like really realized like what was happening um, because I had never actually been labeled as that. Like I understood that I was that that ethnicity, but to be frankly or like black and white labeled as that, it was very new to me. I remember also feeling like very alone in classes um, as well. I did a lot of science-based courses, which 
we're very underrepresented in those those kinds of courses and that kind of work as well. I mean, you see it in professions still, there's a huge lag, even in the tech industry, right? Um, there's not enough people um, that are of Hispanic origin or Latin origin in those kinds of industries still. And so you see it also in dietetics as well. So when I was taking all of my dietetic courses, I was like, one of very few women of color in those courses as well. So it was a very interesting time for me in understanding that I was a minority woman and then to also see it the same way, not in just like my everyday life as a student, but also as a student athlete. Um, I wouldn't say that I was the only Hispanic woman on my team at all at University of Houston. I was very lucky to have more than one Hispanic person on the team with me or more than one Hispanic woman. But if we look at collegiate sports, there is a very alarming um, low amount of women of color in, in distance running, um, I will say. So I think like lining up very a lot of the time, even when I was in high school, that's where the body image preoccupation started as well, because I was like, nobody else looks like me in the top 10, like, where are we? Um, and so it was, it was very hard. It was a hard pill to swallow at the time, um, understanding like that there was gonna be nobody else that looked like me at the races sometimes, or like maybe only my my teammate was gonna be the only one that was gonna look like me there. Um, and that's, I think that was also very hard to, to accept um, that I, that me and my body were different and that the color of my skin was different, that my culture and my ethnicity was different from everybody else as well. And so I think there was a lot of this this um, this awareness of that that I just couldn't put into words like I couldn't put into what I was experiencing and so because of that all of that stress that I was experiencing it manifested itself into an eating disorder because that was the only thing I could control um, it you know on top of all of the school stress the stress I was experiencing on a daily basis with that the stress of being a collegiate athlete and a runner somebody who was a high achieving person that was also very stressful. Um, and so the only thing that I could control was like the way that my body looked. And I felt like if I could just fit in here and be a better athlete, I would be more accepted in these spaces. And maybe like that was not told to me, but I felt like that's what I had to do in order to feel more accepted or to feel like I belonged at least somewhere. It sounds like an incredibly overwhelming time for you. And I feel like we talk a lot about, you know, that period between high school and college where mm -hmm. a lot of eating disorders, disordered eating is developed because it's a stressful time, you know, mm -hmm. athletically, academically. I think a lot of people search for control, but you have this whole extra layer of being underrepresented in at your school and in this extremely white sport, which I don't think is often talked about how that can also lead to eating disorders mm -hmm. and, and other issues. When did this preoccupation with uh, body image and food and this overwhelm, when did you realize that this is a problem? Um, I, well, I actually started with like disordered eating when I was in high school and that started very, very innocently. I had no idea what was happening at the time. I was taking a lot of, uh, extracurricular courses and like AP courses. I was taking like dual credit stuff when I was in, in high school as well. Um, so I had a lot going on and, um, 
you know, even now as an adult, I've, I've, I understand that when I'm in a high stress situation or I'm under a lot of stress, my appetite goes away, which happens to a lot of people, whether they have an eating disorder or not. Um, at that time, that's what happened to me. I was under a lot of stress and my appetite was not at the forefront of my mind. It was like completing everything and like being the best athlete that I could be. Um, so I lost weight very innocently. And then um, I was praised by my peers for the weight loss. Um, and so I think that's also like really important when we think about um, praising weight loss, it may not always be a good thing for the person. And I think more people should be aware of that. You should not be commenting on people's bodies, whether or not they seemingly have a healthy relationship with food. That's none of your business of what has happened to somebody's body. Um, so I just like to add that there. Mm-hmm. Um, so important. It's extremely important. It like gets under my skin. Um, but I think at that time, that's what happened. And of course, being a people pleaser, tightly personality, I also started to see um, an improvement in my running. Um, I got faster. I, you know, I was hitting times that I hadn't hit before, but I was also, you know, I had increased the volume, the intensity. I was an upperclassman as well. So I felt more experienced. I was more confident because I was an upperclassman at that time. So I think there was a lot of different things that played into that performance. It just was not that I had weight loss. Um, I will say I was a little, I think that's where even like the food stuff started to happen where I was thinking about it more because I was afraid of like, well, if I gain weight, will I receive the same praise? Will my times change or whatever that is? So I think I wanted to maintain that level of, I don't want to say superiority, but I think that I wanted to continue with that same level of like praise from my peers. I mean, who doesn't want to be liked when they're a teenager? For sure. Um, so I think that was like a big thing around it. And I think I had also developed this other identity as like the runner that, you know, was always a good student that did everything well, that was quote unquote perfect. And I think that was an identity that I was striving for underneath everything um, because I had so much stress um, going on from school. Um, And so I think that's where it started out was like disordered eating. And then I had a loss of a menstrual cycle too at that time. Um, Nobody had ever talked to me about amenorrhea, female athlete triad. So I had no idea what was going on. Um, And then I went into college. Um, And so that's where more pressure settled in to run really well. Um, And I think one of the hard parts about that is that Um, many people don't understand that when you are a person of color or maybe not a person of color, right? If you are the first person that goes to college, that is a huge deal. And not that I was that because my older sister and my dad had gone to college and finished, but I was the first one in my family to receive an athletic scholarship. Um, And I was the first one to leave home at such a young age it's like very uncommon for hispanic girls to leave home at that young of an age um and i think more people need to be aware of that when you have a daughter or a niece or a sister or somebody that's leaving college um at that young of an age it's it's definitely very different um it's a it's a much harder thing to experience alone And so I think like that was something else that had 
fed into the eating disorder too, was like all of this pressure to not fail. Cause if I had failed, you know, I left home um, and I, and I couldn't go back home. Um, I had to like stick it out because there's like this amount of pride as well as, you know, being a Hispanic woman and doing these things. So I had a lot of pride tied to that too. It's so interesting how you talk about this kind of like, I can take care of everything by myself mentality because, in, you know, that feeds eating disorders, but at the same time, eating disorders thrive in silence and if you don't have community. So I hear like this kind of, this dynamic where, of course, you know, this is going to perpetuate it because you don't have that, your family around you, you don't have that community. Yeah, I think it's also a little bit of like an immigrant mentality too. I mean, my grandmother is an immigrant and, you know, she's still alive and we we still see it a lot. You know, my grandmother is now a citizen, but my mom always tells us that we are just like my grandmother, where we are very independent. And um, she says, like, I don't know if I would have been able to leave that young, but your grandmother came to the U.S. when she was 16, and I sometimes I think about that a lot, actually, in in how how I think well, Grandma didn't leave, live like a half full life. She lived like a hundred percent of full life. Yeah, it's so interesting to think about like, the legacy of mm-hmm. the immigrant experience. Yeah, and so I think that's kind of what it was too, like this legacy, like this pride of like. Well, grandma left a uh, very early on in life, like she left everything. So if grandma did that, then I can too, right? And so I cannot, I cannot fail because then that would mean that it would be representative of like this, this break in the legacy, right? Like almost that my grandmother gave up everything for us to do things like that. So why not just go for it? In other words. Yeah, thank you. I mean, so much for for sharing that. Like that is obviously a relatable feeling mm-hmm. to to many second, third generation Americans and so mm-hmm. powerful. So thank you. I want to talk a little bit about your recovery process because I know that you know you finally did get help um for what you were dealing with for your eating disorder and I'm wondering whether the professionals that you worked with accounted for your various identities, both your identity as a Mexican-American woman and your identity as a very competitive athlete? Mm -hmm. I do think, um, so my my treatment started um, probably in my sophomore year of college. I went through all of my freshman year undiagnosed and, you know, I was still disorder eating, but I was experiencing a lot of stress around food and like preoccupation with it and body image issues. And it was my coach that I had told, um, well, my coach actually cornered me in his office and he said, you know, I know you have a problem and if you do not seek out help, um, I'm going to kick you off the team. And so again, I can't fail the legacy. So I said, yes. Um, so I went into, to, to see a therapist and a dietitian right away. And so I would say that that was probably the best thing that happened to me at the time, um, being you know, told that if, if I were to not do that, then I would lose everything. Right. Um, so I went into treatment and I don't think, 
at that time, nutrition is very different and it's still changing and evolving in how we treat communities of color um, and how we help communities of color understand food and body image and health disparities and all of those things. Um, so I think the more that we learn collectively together, it just moves that needle along and it helps us be more aware of what these communities need. Um, I think at that time it was not competent at all in culture, cultures or food or anything like that. I think it was very difficult. And I think that's also why I had such a hard time being able to embrace my cultural identity as a dietitian and as a Hispanic runner, because I was not identifiable in many ways. And I think it was very shameful um, to eat Hispanic foods because they would cause diabetes, heart disease, and all of those things. And those are the things that I had learned in school. So when I started working with my professional team, um, they were specialists in eating disorders. So I think that they understood that, you know, not, not to say certain things because it would trigger or make the eating disorder worse. So I think they did a very good job there. But I think in terms of like understanding how to talk to me about acculturation and assimilation, cultural identity, I don't know if that was ever brought up. I cannot remember any kind of conversation. And I actually remember, you know, my therapist at the time um, mentioning, you know, cause I, we were talking about buying new clothing um, and like I was preoccupied by the, by the way that my clothes were fitting. And she had said, well, why don't you try to, you know, buy new clothing or, you know, you can use other clothing. And I was like, I don't have any money to buy clothing. And so my therapist, and I don't think she like understood, I don't think she like meant any harm by it either, but she had said, well, I'm sure if your parents, you know, if you told your parents you needed new clothing, that they would buy you new clothing, which is probably true. But I think like, that is also a very privileged thing to say as well. Yeah. Um, which I don't think she was aware of either at the time, um, because it was already like 10 years ago that I was receiving this kind of treatment. So I think it's just like things like that that are not understood very well. And I think now, you know, with, you know, with everything that's happened over the last year, we all have a better understanding of where we lie on the privilege spectrum too, mm -hmm. um, or which way the pendulum is swinging right for us. So I think just understanding those kinds of things. Now as a dietitian and being a professional in this space or works in conjunction with eating disorders, it is something that I am very, very sensitive about. And even like in the cultural foods and like understanding what do my clients need from me? Do they need me to meet them halfway? Um, because I think like not just the cultural identity piece or like being a Hispanic woman was not talked about very much. I think, um, you know, running culture is also very, very different from most athletic cultures too. And so I think that was also a really hard one to talk about was like, not just like that the running was feeding my eating disorder, because um, I don't think it ever really was, to be quite honest. I knew that I needed running. Like it was like a central focal point. And I think a lot of runners understand that. It's just like, unfortunately, 
the the other things that we can't control that is affecting the eating disorder and i think like it was definitely my cultural identity had i solved those problems first and foremost and had somebody to talk to me about them or to ask me like right up front how does it feel to be a mexican woman as a runner like tell me like i wish somebody was like that blunt and just ask the question mm-hmm. um, instead of tiptoeing around it maybe yeah, you you mentioned how now in your practice as a registered dietitian, it's so important for you to be cognizant of privilege and to open up these conversations and and talk mm-hmm. about what it's like for your BIPOC clients, for BIPOC athletes. And I mean, that's so clear for anyone who's familiar with your work. It's very evident that that's a focus of yours. But I'm curious if that was a driver for you to become a registered dietitian, whether you were thinking about opening up conversations on inclusivity for BIPOC clients? You know, I think about that a lot. And I think that it was always there. Like I knew I was like, I knew people like me were underrepresented in athletics. I knew we were underrepresented in nutrition and in the athletic world and in marketing material and email systems and all of those things, right? Like it's very evident now. Um, So I think I think that was something that I always understood. And I remember always feeling like there's a there's a freaking reason why I experienced this thing and why like I'm understanding these things now. Like there is a true reason why. And I remember deciding to be a dietitian because I actually wanted to get away from athletics. I wanted to get away from nutrition. Like I wanted to go into research and public health initiatives more um, and doing things like that. Like I wanted to be more in an academic setting. And I remember in my research, it was always going back to Latino feeding practices, health disparities and things like that. And that is where I understood acculturation and assimilation. It was through that research that I acquired the language to talk about it. Um, And I remember the exact moment that I was reading an article and I was understanding these measurements of how, you know, how to measure acculturation. And I was just like, why didn't I learn this in dietetics? This is a very important piece to understand why, you know, Latinos or communities of color are having these issues. It's not our food. It is because of everything else that is happening to us um, that we're having these problems around food now and are having these issues around body image. Like it was just like a whole light bulb went off. Um, And I remember I was working for a doctor at the time and he was prescribing raw vegan diets, um, which I did not agree with at all. And I remember thinking like, who does this? Like, this is a very privileged thing Mm -hmm. to do. And this is pretty ridiculous. And I remember being like, people like this should not be recommending nutrition information to people um, at all. And it made me very angry. And I remember the next day I woke up and I was like, that's it. I am applying to dietetic. I'm going to be a registered dietitian. Um, So I remember like experiencing all of these things at the same time. And then waking up one day and like, it's funny because I think I'm also that kind of personality that when I make a decision to do something, that's it. I think I've acquired enough research and like I've been reflecting a lot on it. And so that was definitely one of those decisions um, in my life that I woke up one day and I was like, all right, I'm doing this thing and that's it. Um, And I quickly applied 
and then I got in and then I became a registered dietitian like a year later. But I remember like having that aha moment um, of like going through everything and reading everything. And I think just using my lived experiences to help guide me. Well, I think of you as a bit of an anomaly in the sports nutrition and dietetics space. I don't know if this is just from my limited perspective, but I'm wondering if if that is the case. And I would love to know a little bit more about what the world of sports nutrition and dietetics looks like when it comes to acknowledging privilege, when it comes to cultural sensitivity. Is it true that there isn't much conversation around these topics in the greater sphere of registered dietitians? I think that's a great question. Um, I do think that there are pockets of dietitians that are doing the work and like really trying to progress our profession forward. Um, I, I do think that it is moving along a lot better because of social media. Um, and I think because there are dietitians like me in different spaces that are very vocal about it. And I actually am so thankful that they are very vocal about it because in turn, I think it's given me a stronger voice to be more, more of an advocate for cultural diversity, especially in this space. Um, um, I think, I think like there's just organizations that I think are doing a better job. I think the Academy in Nutrition and Dietetics, I think they could do a better job, but I mean, I, it definitely takes work and progress for like a larger body to move things forward. So I think it'll just like be something that we kind of wait around for. But I do think like organizations like Diversify Dietetics is doing a great job of, you know, bringing in more, um, more interns of color and students of color and like educating them on like, this is why we need you. So it's like a very empowering organization that I think is doing great things for dietitians. Um, I also think um, Heather Kaplan at um, Inclusive in Nutrition and Dietetics is doing a fantastic job as well, opening the conversation that all bodies are worthy of nutrition and of self-care and of healing and that don't have to do diets or disordered eating. So I think she's doing a great job as well. Um, I think in terms of sports nutrition, it is, it is very difficult. I would say that it is hard because there are very few dietitians of color in sports dietetics that I see and that are working with endurance athletes um, or uh, runners just like me. And so I do see a few, which is fantastic. Um, I think we're starting up more and like realizing that we're needed in this space. And, um, you know, I definitely can't do it alone. So if there's any dietitians looking or listening to this podcast, you're definitely needed here. Um, and I've had many conversations with dietitians that want to work with athletes that are women or men of color. Um, I feel like definitely a, I've gotten a lot of messages over the last couple of months about it. Um, and I always tell them that they are needed. They are so necessary here um, because I work specifically with endurance athletes or runners. And I can't, you know, I don't work with baseball players, which is predominantly Latino mm -hmm. sport. And soccer players, like they are definitely need needed in those sports too. Um, and even cycling, like there is a huge Hispanic population that cycles. And I think people are so quick to forget that because we're not in mainstream media. Mm, yeah, for sure. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, by focusing on that bigger picture and the bigger world of dietetics, I don't mean to at all undervalue the work that specific people such as yourself are doing because it's so powerful. And you mentioned Heather as well, Heather Kaplan, who's going to actually be a future podcast guest. So folks will get to hear from her and the work she's doing. But I, I there are so many individual people as well who are doing very important work. And you yourself, yeah. I mean, even if we look at your Instagram feed, it's just so clear how how passionate you are and how much great work you're doing in this area. One thing that you do is you often destigmatize certain foods that are important to different cultures and communities. Could you tell me a little bit more about the stigma surrounding cultural foods in the sports nutrition space and how you are combating that? I think that there is definitely it's I definitely see it a lot where like my cultural clients don't feel that like plantains or platano right is a healthy food and it could be the way that they're preparing it if they feel about it um but it's been definitely like our Hispanic foods have been shamed so much for causing weight gain causing diabetes and so forth and I'm just like they're carbohydrates, they're necessary for you. And I think it's also like all the therapy that I've gone through in the past and like um, understanding like what carbohydrates do for us on a nutrition level where I'm able to like decipher that and work through it with a client. Um, But I do think that there is not enough culturally sensitive material out there in sports dietetics. Um, And I do think that that is an area that does need to be you know, addressed a lot better. Um, I think a lot of times when we think about healthy eating, we're thinking about kale and quinoa and so forth. But then it's like, yeah, but where does quinoa come from? Like that is a Hispanic food. Um, And so I think for people to even understand things like that, like pinole, like that is a very cultural food Um, or using like just regular corn. Like that is a, you know, it's, it is, from Hispanic origin as well. So I think like just understanding like all of these things, it makes the food so much richer and it makes people's experiences around food. It definitely makes people think a little bit more about, you know, yeah, like if we actually unpack, for example, tamales, like that is a Mayan ritual, sorry, an Aztec ritual where they would make tamales for the men that would go and you know, hunt because they didn't know how long they were going to be out. Um, And so that way they had enough stamina and energy to actually, you know, go and do the things that they needed to, to survive and then come back and make it back with food and resources for their tribes or for their community. So I think like, in my opinion, now understanding that and like where food comes from, like, heck yeah, it should actually be okay to eat them and go on a long run the next day, should you decide to, or to go into a workout or a regular one, like, why not? It is breaded within the culture. It is inseamed in the culture already that these foods are good for endurance and stamina. What you just said is is so important. And I wish it was more widely thought about because I think about, you know, a lot where food comes from, from an environmental perspective. I don't think people think as often about where food comes from, from a cultural historical uh, perspective and how it's connected to fuel and sports. 
And I guess I'm just curious whether you have any ideas on how to make that knowledge more widespread, because just what a powerful tool that could be to really think about the cultural significance of food and then connect that to maybe endurance and just the different the different power you can get from different foods. Right. I think a lot of it, uh, marketing for one, nutrition marketing um, can definitely change. Um, I think I think more companies being aware of, you know, how they're educating people as well could definitely be more culturally sensitive. Um, you know, I'm always receiving things from the feed and they're very diet culture-y. So somebody from the feed is listening. Yeah, I think you should change. Because I actually get a lot of um, screenshots from people all the time about it too, um, because it is very diet centered and weight centered and like all kinds of things. It's extremely triggering for a lot of people. Um, so I wish they would change their marketing campaigns a lot more. Um, I think Maybe I'll tag someone from the feed in this in this podcast. I'll have to, you know, do a little social media tag. Go listen to this. I've I've gotten a lot of um, messages about it actually, um, and I have seen very many of them, which I have not actually been good about, you know, screenshotting and challenging them. So maybe I should also do that more often. Um, but I think I think there's definitely is, and I think just like not on top of like nutrition marketing campaigns or anything like that or like food companies. I think also just like in sport. Um, what I found really interesting recently um, during the pandemic was how there was like this fantastic video. I can't remember who put it out, which company put it out, but they were talking about how running had been decolonized. And so I think like going back and like understanding like which cultures are so rich with history and running. And it's not just like American running all the time or like um, you know, when the running craze started, you know, back in, back when Nike was starting as well in Oregon, it was like the place that everybody was congregating to, or like mostly runners were being found. Um, I think, I think that time it definitely took away from like the richness of running in all kinds of other cultures and communities across the world. And I think like, of course, like we became a focal point in like what runners should look like and be like and what they should be doing. And I think that has definitely affected generations of runners that are just like me um, because we are nowhere to be found. You bring up how, you know, runners who don't look like this stereotypical white, you know, thin, small bodied person being alienated in the sport. But I'm also curious whether you've seen that affecting athletes in a different way and that they're not able to receive care when a problem arises, perhaps an eating disorder or reds. Do you see that stigma affecting athletes in that way as well? I definitely do. Um, I see it happen quite a bit um, with my with a lot of the runners that I work with. Um, it's not just like runners who want to get better and perform. There's runners who do have a lot of stress and around food and they're anxious about fitting the runner identity. And that is, um, I think really, really interesting for me to observe as a dietitian because we're not only addressing their nutrition concerns to just run and fulfill that 
that particular thing. I'm also having to address like, well, you know, why do you think you're overeating here? Um, is it because you are restricting? And so that is a disordered eating behavior. You don't have to be diagnosed with an eating disorder to experience disordered eating. Um, I think that is also something that a lot of people um, don't understand is that whenever you are restricting, underfueling, um, or like skipping a meal, that could that that is actually like disordered eating in order to control your body or to control something that is disordered eating. Yeah, you don't have to be diagnosed with an eating disorder to experience disordered mm-hmm. eating. I feel like that is just like a slogan for our society. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the beginning of 2021. I'm just seeing all of these ads and social media for restrictive diets being talked about. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that because we've mentioned the marketing side of this what would you say to an athlete or anyone who is feeling the pull to try maybe keto or paleo or any of those restrictive diets that we're seeing pop up everywhere? I think some of the first things I always have to ask and challenge is how long are you planning to stick with it? Do you see yourself doing it beyond 30 days a year? Why or why not? Why do you think it's going to help you perform at a better at a, at a higher level? Do you think it's going to help you perform or show up for other people in your life? Because it's not just about you. It's also about everybody else around you. Um, and I think that is something that we're so quick to forget. And disordered eating and eating disorders, they want you to be selfish. Like that is like the root and the life force of an eating disorder is that it just wants you to think about you and nobody else. Totally. Yeah. It goes back to that. How, mm-hmm. how much eating disorders thrive in silence and without community. Exactly. It doesn't want you to have to think about other people. Um, it just wants you to, you know, get rid of all the other decision-making processes. And like life does not work that way. Um, you're making decisions on a constant basis. Now, can we simplify them? Sure. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you should be cutting out food in order to simplify your life. It means that you probably should work through a lot of the other stressors and triggers that are making you feel like you have no control over food. I'm wondering if you have any goals for changes or visions, I guess I should say, for changes you want to see in the world of sports dietetics and eating disorder care. It can be in the realm of making it more inclusive for BIPOC athletes or anything else, any other changes. I would love to see more body diversity. I think that is like number one for me. And I think it's definitely cultural diversity is important, but I think also like, I think educating more runners on like their roots of running. Like, I think there definitely needs to be more of that. I think when I understood like, yeah, running goes back to my Mexican indigenous roots. And this is why I feel so connected to it. Like that, that was something that I think like, it definitely fuels and propels like my own athletic endeavors that me and my body, while I am still a very thin, smaller bodied runner, it definitely took me a long time to understand like what my body represented in this space. And it is like, you know, I may not be stick thin as everybody else or thinner or smaller, but like the curves on my body, 
those are representative of my culture. And so they belong there because I belong there. It is important that people see my body in its fullest and, and happiest moment because more people need to see that they can actually do those things too in their body. So it is important for our bodies to remain and to be healthy and happy because I think that is what people strive for indefinitely is like this health and this happiness in their body. It's not necessarily the thinness that they're striving for. So I think if we saw more people that have diverse bodies, it would definitely allow people to feel safer in this space too. That is an extremely powerful statement. I have chills right now. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about the athletic successes you've had in that body of yours, because you've had a lot of recent running success. I mean, you qualified and ran in the Olympic trials in 2020. What was that experience like? I would say that I was probably, you know, I'm not exactly sure on like the number of women that were Hispanic. I think it was like one of 25 women. Um, But I think for me, it was more of like, like we are collectively here, right? And so hopefully there will be more Hispanic numbers in that field the next time um, and more women of color. Um, I think that is another big one um, that I think many people, you know, see as well that we need to have more diversity in that field. Um, and I think, I think understanding that I was like one of like, maybe like 40 women of color, I'm guessing. I'm not sure exactly, but, and that's just like, I'm definitely shooting in the dark there for that one. But I think like understanding that that we belong there. And I think that was like a big turning point for me was understanding that being in that race, it was, it was, a ne- it was necessary that I was there and not just for myself and for my family. Um, but I think like, I think that's what made that experience so much more enriching for me was knowing that, that hopefully people saw me and they saw themselves as well. I'm sure they did. Do you think you recognize that I belong here? It's necessary for me to be here. Was that a thought you had before the trials or that did that really come to head in Atlanta at the trials? I think that was something that I had to really like do a lot of reflective work on. Like, I was just like, what does this mean to me? Um, Because I think times like they can definitely feel happy and exciting, but like, what effect does it have on other people? The same way as like food choices, like what is the effect that it's going to have? Like, I made a choice to do this thing. I made a choice to pursue this goal. Now, what is the effect of it? Is it just solely for me? And I'm somebody who is 100% mission oriented in all the things that I do. But I think for me, it was more of like, what does it mean for other people? Um, Not just myself, because if I were to choose to come back here again, would I be satisfied? Would it make me equally as happy to be here as like this very first time in this very first moment I'm doing this? Um, so I think it definitely took a lot. And I think one of the best conversations I had was a client, um, and she is a, a BIPOC runner as well, living in New York. And so when the riots were happening, we had talked about what did that mean? Cause she was doing a streak, a running streak at that time. And I asked her, what did that mean for you? Why do you think you went out there every day to do that? And she was talking about how it meant to her, like this form of protest and so forth. And it made me also think about why was it so important for me? And it was because um, my body allows me to rebel in a way that I am not able to um, vocally or maybe in other actions, right? Like 
I think runners are very introverted, very quiet, most are very shy, type A, goal-oriented people, right? I think that's like a common personality type. Um, and even though I seem very like loud and extroverted, I'm actually have seen like, I am actually very quiet and shy person, um, but I am very outgoing. So I think whenever I'm out there on a run, it allows me to rebel in a way that is true to my core. Um, and it still is in alignment with my value systems because I see running as a way to explore and to rebel. I'm able to use my body to do that and to reject the status quo of what body should look like because I am constantly pursuing this rebellious act. I'm constantly doing the things that people did not think I should do, that people do not show me that I can do. And I am here to rebel against those constructs that we are told or that we're told to live within. Wow. Yeah. I mean, just the, the idea of running as a form of protest in itself is so mm -hmm. powerful to me. I mean, talking about it in 2020, there are so many yeah. <laughs> uh, running protests centered around Black Lives Matter, but also just the act of running as someone who doesn't maybe look like a quote unquote, you know, what is expected for a runner to look like in the United States is in a lot of ways a form of protest. And yeah, I just love everything ab about that. It's such an intriguing, important topic, that idea of movement as protest. Yeah, I think it's a very existential thing. And, it, and I think um, it can mean different things for people. For some people, running is just a way to pursue other goals or for stress relief. But I'm pretty adamant that there's so much more underneath that. It's not just stress relief. It's like, well, it's okay to admit that mom needs time for herself. And why is that important? Because you have to think about everybody else all the time. And that is the only time that you get to have a goal that is 100% for you. Um, and I think like if people dived a little bit deeper into that, that need, I think it could definitely bring up a lot more of why running is so important to so many people because to pursue it at a high level or to pursue it on a daily basis, not just anybody does that. Well, I can tell that running is very important to you and you're pursuing it on a high level, but at the same time, you have this full-time career as a registered dietitian. You're the owner and founder of The Healthy Shine, your own practice. I mean, I can't, can't imagine how busy you are. How do you balance that? Not only that need to run for your own self, but you, you train at a high level with that demanding career, I'm sure. Right. Um, so... I, I, at the beginning of the episode, I had shared that the Healthy Shine was founded during COVID. Um, so I will say that the first beginning months of COVID, um, there was no races. So it was a very loose running structure. Um, so I wasn't like training at a super high level, still running with a great amount of mileage. Um, but um, beginning of June, I got injured from an IT band injury. So I've been working through my IT band injury since July. Um, so my mileage is still like 20 miles or less per week. But, and I've been very, very, I, th I think, I think understanding like the relationship with running, like I understand what running means to me and what it does for me and what it allows me to do and how I've used it. Um, and I think it was very necessary that running just kind of, I guess like it's not as it's not a focal point at this time because I know that there is something that I need to to do and pursue that is at a higher 
priority list at this moment. That doesn't mean that running is, you know, not important to me at all. And I think that is something that runners feel guilty about is like when they get injured, they have to prioritize other things and they're worried about weight gain or running not being important to them. I think that is why it's so important to under to understand, you know, yes, running gives you a stress relief, but what else does it do for you? Like, what is your mission in life and how does running support that? Um, because it is a tool to allow you to support those higher goals for yourself. And I think I understood what running did for me at that level. Like it allows me to rebel. And within my work, it is a rebellious thing because I'm encouraging for people to feed their bodies when social constructs have told us that we should not be feeding our bodies. So the whole idea of kind of taking a step back and thinking about what running means to you is super relatable to me. I mean, I'm in a similar point as you right now, where you know, coming back from injuries and taking it easy and not putting as much emphasis on running. So I'm sure that will be relatable to tons of other people too. And, and just the idea of thinking about running in, in a different way and perhaps a deeper way at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am definitely a proponent of of unraveling and dismantling a little bit of like, um, what, what else does running mean for people? Um, and again, there's no shame in saying that running is stress, stress relief. Like we know that like physiologically that it does release like endorphins, dopamine and things like that. So I'm sure it does release cortisol and stress, right? Like that is a definite physiological benefit, but I think like existentially or what is our mission with running I think that is something else to always, always think about because there's going to be different life stages and you can't expect anything from running either. Um, running is running is a source of happiness, but it is not the focal point of happiness either. I love that so much. Like so many of the things you've said today, are you, are you ready to cool it down a little bit and do some fun rapid fire questions? Sure. Yes, definitely. <laughs> All right. So what is your favorite post and pre-run fuel? Um, my favorite pre-run fuel is a thick bar by nature's bakery. I love them so much. Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Has there been a silver lining of the past year in pandemic times? I think the silver lining was definitely my injury. Um, it gave me a lot of space to think. Um, and it gave me a lot of time to, uh, I think, nurture what I have and like this, like the ability to use my career for greater good and to align a lot of my value systems together with running. Um, I always wanted to work with runners and I always wanted to do the things that I do now. So I think being able to do the work because I have the time and the space to do it. So my injury was very, very necessary for a lot of my inner work and the work that I do in my career. Okay. Next time I'm injured, I'm going to give you a call and have you tell me <laughs> exactly that, because that is probably the most grounded perspective on injury I've ever heard. <laughs> Thanks. I think, yeah, injuries, they feel so hard, but I went through this injury before and I like look at back at the time that I, how much energy I spent preoccupied with like how my body was going to change, what foods I was going to eat, how much I was going to cross train. So I didn't lose fitness. Like, and now I'm just like, okay, like a mile or, you know, I'm not going to run today, whatever. Like it's probably best that I, that I don't do it. And I think 
I think being in recovery has been such a gift because I don't worry about my injuries. I see them as very necessary for me. Like, yeah, it probably saved me from a fracture. Um, it probably saved me from something else. So I'm going to take my injury and like sit with it and like use the time and those space that I have now to do other meaningful things. Very impressive perspective and very true as well. So do you have a favorite book or show you've read or watched recently? Oh my goodness. I read Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights. Um, I thought it was so fantastic. And maybe because I'm a Texan too, I absolutely loved it. Um, I thought it was so, so informative. And I think I really liked his prose as well and the, the tone that he took with the book. Um, and you know, he's an actor, so he brought so much joy to his life as well. And like, there's this underlying optimism the entire time, but I think I loved the way that he looks back on like different life events and aha moments as like, so pivotal to, to his career. And I think that was definitely relatable for me too. So it gave me a lot of points to look back on and how I've gotten to this point. It wasn't like an overnight thing. I know it sounds like, oh, I jumped and I became an entrepreneur and like COVID and everything was great. It was like, no, there was a lot of different things I had to experience to reach this point. And this is where like, it was all of those struggles that became so purposeful to my success that I feel like I have now, the confidence that I have, it was within all those struggles that gave me purpose. I've, I haven't read Green Lights and I've heard many good reviews now. So now I'll have to put it on my list, but I always love like when a book gives you that perspective on your own life. That's so awesome. Yeah. I also read, uh, or this is through Audible. So I recommend listening to it on Audible because he is so funny. Um, and I also listened to Trevor Noah's book on Audible. And that is also fantastic, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure it is. It's hysterical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was great because he talks about the apartheid in South Africa and like okay. like that with his mother and like all the things that he had, you know, gone through with his mom. Yeah. Cool, cool. Two things I haven't read, so I'll have to have to check them out for sure. So my last question that I ask everyone is why is sport a powerful platform for social change? Sport is such a powerful platform for social change because we can all be part of social change. It is not just one person or one organization or um, one academy or one company or marketing email. We are all part of social change and we all have the ability to challenge constructs. And when these constructs no longer exist, we are all more free together. We are definitely more free together. I love that. Starla, you are just incredibly powerful. Like I, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. So many thank things you, you said are just beautiful. And I w- wish you all the best in the new year with all of your endeavors. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. I definitely had a lot of fun today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. I learned so much from this conversation with Starla and I am so grateful for the work she is doing. This episode was the fourth episode in a five episode series on reds and eating disorders in sports. We have one episode left in this series and I would love to hear what you think of it. Reach out on Instagram at socialsportpod to let me know what you thought of this series and all of these conversations we've had. 
Another super helpful thing you can do for me is you can go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review for Social Sport. Super helpful in getting the word out about this podcast. You can find more info on this episode in the show notes at SidiousMag.com in the podcasts tab under Social Sport. Thank you so much for joining me today and always. Stay sporty and keep resisting.